The scripture this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and 8 to 13. So when we couldn't stand being separated from you any longer and could find no way to visit you ourselves, we stayed in Athens and sent Timothy to get you up and about, cheering you on so you wouldn't be discouraged by these hard times. He's a brother and companion in the faith, God's man in spreading the message, preaching Christ. But now that Timothy is back, bringing this terrific report on your faith and love, we feel a lot better. It's especially gratifying to know that you continue to think well of us and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. In the middle of our trouble and hard times here, Just knowing how you're doing keeps us going. Knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive. What would be an adequate thanksgiving to offer God for all the joy we experienced before him because of you? We do what we can, praying away night and day, asking for the bonus of seeing your faces again, and doing what we can to help when your faith falters. May God, our Father himself, and our Master Jesus clear the road to you, and may the Master pour on the love so it fills your lives and splashes over on everyone around you, just as it does from us to you. May you be infused with strength and purity, filled with confidence in the presence of God, our Father, when our Master Jesus arrives with all his followers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcia, for the reading. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. These were verses in the reading. In the middle of our struggle and hard times, just knowing how you're doing keeps us going. Do you have friendships like that? Do you have people you love like that? In the middle of our struggle and hard times, just knowing how you're doing keeps us going. Knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive. May the master pour on the love so that it fills your lives and splashes over on everyone around you, just as it does from us to you. I want us to take a minute and just picture that with our minds. The words are evoking an image, right? May the master pour on the love. I'm thinking like maple syrup on pancakes. Right? (laughs) 
May the master pour on the love so that it fills your lives and splashes over on everyone around you, just as it does from us to you. The theme that was set out uh, well in advance for today was you make what you love. You make what you love. What we love in our lives shows. It shows in the way we spend our time, in the decisions behind our actions, the words we use, and the tone with which we share them. It's infectious. It shows. May the master pour on the love. So it spills over. It fills your lives and splashes on everyone around you, just as it does from us to you. It's important to recognize that we are the body of Christ, and so the way that God's love is pouring on us and splashing out into the world is like the way that Paul's relationship with the church he's writing to inspired him, but inspired and shaped them as well. We make what we love, right? Our kids love sports. So we're going to have a lot of sports out here. Maybe that's different in Wisconsin, maybe it isn't. But our kids love sports, and so we are going to support that, right? And they're going to, sports is going to become something that is really a big part of our lives and our shared culture. We make what we love. Friendship and family is important to us. And so us pouring forth our love in that way, right, is going to shape a community in which friendship and family has meaning and power and is there for us when we need it. Knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive, Paul says. James K.A. Smith writes that the image of God, you know, how we're all made in the image of God, the image of God is not a physical trait, We're not supposed to interpret this idea that we're made in the image of God in the sense that God basically looks like us, just like a a lot bigger. No, that we're made in the image of God. He writes, the image of God is a task. It's a mission. This may sound strange to you, but we have to remember that one of the most powerful ways we have of understanding what God is is creator, generator, right? The one from whom everything has come. Ah, so this is not a God who's just hanging out, lazing around, watching TV. No, this is a God who's making things all the time, so it makes sense that the image of God is also generative and creative. The image of God is a doing. It's a doing. How do our actions show what we love. The image of God is not a physical trait. The image of God is a task, a mission. He writes, and so the body of Christ is called to be that peculiar people who occupy creation and remind the world that it belongs to God. Abby loves camp, and so she talks about it all the time. The body of Christ 
is called to be that peculiar people who occupy creation and remind the world that it belongs to God. Faithful presence is how we occupy creation. Just knowing how you're doing keeps us going. Knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive. If I were writing this and not James Smith, I might, use, might have used slightly different language. I'm a queer theologian. I follow queer theology. And so I might have used that word in this quote. The body of Christ is called to be that peculiar people. I might have written, we are called to be that queer people who occupy creation and remind the world that it belongs to God. And I'll say more about that in a minute. Because what that is about is about how love shows up in our actions, in the way we think about the world as well as what we do in the world, and primarily how we think about one another. We make what we love. And there have been many, many scholars who have offered to hold up a mirror to us to show us that we are not failing to make what we love so much as we are finding that what we love is not always good for us and it is not always Christ-like. Scholar James Hillman wrote a book called A Terrible Love of War. And in that book, he points out all of these threads running through religion and history and psychology and meaning-making that show that human beings love war. We love war. Why? Because it relates so deeply to that part of us that longs to put things in categories, to make order out of chaos because it is something that we have been exposed to. Violence and conflict, war, supremacy, is something that's been a part of our lives for generations and generations and generations. It's our normal, meaning that it's the thing that's familiar to us. It's what we expect. We love war because it helps us make order, it's also meaningful. When we've identified an enemy and been able to um, understand ourselves in relation to what we can do to help the people who are with us and to oppose the people who are against us, then our lives have meaning and purpose. And there is a shape to the decisions we make and our actions. I think it is fair especially when we look at what's going on in our world today, to observe that humankind has a terrible love of war, and we make what we love. In the Bible, we find that there is a ton of language about war. If you've read the Old Testament, as I know many of you have, we find that it's everywhere. 
be images of God as one who wages war, as a conqueror, as one who's inviting us to make meaning of our experiencing using the metaphors and language of war, it's everywhere. This is why it's important to me that I understand that God uses scripture to talk to us. But scripture, the written word on the page, bound as a book, translated and distributed, yeah, that's work we did. You can see what we love, the vocabulary that we have through what is written there. We have much more words, we have many more words, much more vocabulary about war than we do about peace. When we talk about love, when we try to talk about peace, we describe it as an absence. Right? We have yet to fill in the outlines. And yet some of the most beautiful and power, powerful passages of scripture are the ones that speak about how God is not of war. How God has promised that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, is one where there will be no destruction. There will be no violence, no harm, no war. How can we know this God better? We have to put our imaginations to work. We have to decide to fall in love with peace, obsessively. We have to decide to think about it all the time, to play peace all the time, to talk about it all the time, to make an appointment with peace every week, to make it something around which we can make chosen family and build friendships, to make it the center of our celebrations. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to create the meaningfulness of peace. But peace is God's voice emerging through our love of war. And this moment that where we are witnessing conflict on multiple fronts, particularly this moment of conflict in Israel and Palestine, is an amazing opportunity for us because this particular conflict is so ambiguous. It is a wonderful reflection back to us of how it is impossible to assign blame. There are no there are no good guys. There are no bad guys. It is impossible to claim any of this territory as belonging to anyone at this point. And there is no answer at this moment that's going to feel good, that's going to feel normal. This messiness, this gray, this ambiguity and uncertainty that this conflict is bringing into the center of our lives is a tremendous opportunity for us to begin to define peace. What does it look like? How do we love it in our lives? What does it mean to wage peace? Peace is queer. And this is what I mean by that. Queer theory and queer theology 
sketches out something that, for me, works really well with observing what Christ does at Christ's table, what God does when God preaches peace through the prophets. Here's the reason why. If war is normal, if war and supremacy and conflict and competition is what we are steeped in from our earliest days, from generation to generation, that means peace is marginal. If you fall in love with peace, you're going to find yourself pushed to the edges. It will be harder for you to find yourself comfortable in the center in a place of easy belonging. No, those who wage peace marginalize themselves and are marginalized. It's not normal to take offense at violence. We've all been told we have to accept it. But God doesn't. God's vision of the promised land is one in which the infant can play at the mouth of the, shepherd, uh, of the serpent's den without fear. God does not consider violence normal. Peace is queer because peace is radically inclusive. It's chaotic. It celebrates the undefined. Peace is going to be that force which makes it impossible for us to easily label and blame. This is already going on in the conflict in Palestine and Israel because you may have heard in some of the news articles that one of the challenges of the fighting on the ground is that people can't tell who is who. Amen, may it indeed be so. May we never be able to tell who is who. This is part of what peace looks like. It's inclusive, it's chaotic, it celebrates the undefined. Peace is queer because it's embodied. It's incarnate, just like Jesus is God incarnate, which means that it will not tolerate bodily harm. One of the things that our faith tells us peace means is cease fire. You cannot kill people if you are waging peace. Because God came in flesh and dwelt among us and did not consider being human something to disdain, right? Peace is queer because it is about the practice of making meaning, not the meaning that is made. So war offers us meaning because it gives us an enemy against which we can unite. It helps us make decisions with clarity because it shows us polarizing good and bad and gives us codes by which we can live. That's not the work of making meaning, as it is a meaning that's being handed to us to label everything that is in our lives. No, peace is the work of making meaning, of dealing with metaphor, not the meaning that is made. I couldn't write this down without thinking about the Barbie movie. Have you seen the Barbie movie? I gotta tell you, man, I saw it three times. And every single time, 
Tears were streaming down my face near the end of the film where Barbie is getting the chance to choose her own ending. And she has to recognize that just like Christ, she has to give up eternity. She has to give up perfection if she wants to be human. And she, and she says, I want to be part of the people who make the meaning, not the meaning that is made. What does that mean in a concrete way? To be part of the people who make the meaning and not the meaning that is made? It means Jerusalem doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't belong to anyone. None of this belongs to any of us. This building doesn't belong to us. These pews you're sitting on, it doesn't belong to us. You can take the bulletins with you, but they don't belong to you. None of the resources of this planet belong to you. We are passing this way for such a short while. And we get to go on this journey looking out at all these things saying, wow. But it does not belong to us. We cannot own it. We can only celebrate it and make meaning. And so that's what we do when we practice things like communion, when we recognize that one of the most powerful things that God had to do with us, just as our young people said, watching us, loving us, spending time with us, right? One of the most powerful things God who made everything had to do was not to put one group of people in power, not to categorize right and wrong, not to solve all of our questions. Jesus was here for 33 years and he answered almost no questions. No, what he did was he sat at a table and he called everyone who was willing to be on the outskirts with him to come and take a seat. And they ate together and they experienced what it is to be embodied and alive. And they didn't talk much. And he said, every time you do this, just remember me. Just make meaning of me. That's all I really have to say about this today. And I guess my prayer for all of us is that this is provocative, maybe exciting, and that somehow in our time together, we may find a way to be not wagers of war, but wagers of peace, and that all that we do, our praise and song, our prayer, our sitting at the table, is part of that journey together. Let us hear the voice of God in the anthem. <laughs>